1: The website is Let'sTruck.com. The show is all about the business of trucking. If you've got questions about trucks, money, fuel mileage, maintenance, tires, taxes, technology, we've come to the right place. That's what we do here. We take your calls. We answer your questions about all of those things and more. We can talk about business, money, financial planning, personal development, health and fitness, you name it, we'll tackle it here on the air. All you have to do is join us. We've been talking a lot about health and fitness, and, and we're going to continue that. But right now, I want to shift gears a little bit. And today, I want to talk a little bit more about your finances. You know, if I had to pick two areas of life that we all, most of us anyway, want to do better it would be health and i think that is critically important and money because money helps us do so many other things those two areas are big and and you'll find when you start to make positive changes in those areas everything else gets better the other thing that's nice about those two areas it's easy to measure you know we can measure your financial success really well it's math we can measure your fitness we can go by weight and body fat Uh, your results, how much you can walk or run or lift. All of those things are very easy to measure. That's why these are two areas where I I highly recommend starting if you want to make improvements. Now, it doesn't mean things like relationships aren't important, your spirituality. All of those things are important too, but they're much harder to measure. What is the measurement of a good relationship? I mean, we could certainly say, you know, you get along, you work together, things like that. But it, it's that's a much softer measurement. So those things are important. They're just a little harder to measure. And success in those areas is usually very personal. Money and health and fitness, we can measure those things really well. And I just find that the more we can measure something, the easier it is to improve it. But I've also... I've come up with one of the things that I think we do to sabotage ourselves, and it's so simple. And I look at what I've done in the past and what happens currently when I try to improve an area. And one of the things we do is that when we're thinking about making a change in a certain area, I think we're way too critical on what we're going to change to. Let me give you a good example that I get all the time on the air. Every time I talk about the fair tax and people will call and and maybe they've read a little bit about the fair tax. They've heard me talk about it. They know a few things about it and they will immediately start on all the things that are wrong with the fair tax and why we can't do it. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's how we should work through every issue. But at some point, what we fail to do is we fail to run the current system through that same criteria. A lot of people will say to me, Kevin, I don't think we should go to a fair tax because I think the rich are going to pay less. Well, first of all, we don't know that. We can't know that. We can't even predict the fair tax all that well because it's based on consumption, not earnings. So I don't know whether the rich are going to pay more or not. I really don't. Uh, I think they will end up paying a lot of tax because the rich spend a lot of money and they're not going to change that. But I, I don't know, just speculating. But people will say uh, it, it, the fair tax is no good because of this or because of this. And they'll point things out that could possibly be a negative. I'm not arguing that. What I'm saying though is, okay, once we've done that, once we've pointed out all the reasons why this system is no good, What we tend to do is say, it's got problems. Why would we change to that? Why don't we then instead outline all the problems with what the new system we're thinking about, but then go back and apply that same criteria to our current system? What if we looked at our current tax system the same way we look at a new potential tax system? We point out all the things that are wrong and say, oh, well, we can't do that. There's things wrong with it. It's not perfect. Well, apply that criteria to our current tax system. My God, we'll, it, the list will never end all the problems with it, but we're okay with that because those are our problems and we're comfortable with them. Why are we comfortable with them? And I'm using the fair tax as an example because it, it really does point out how we do that. Think back to every conversation we've had about the fair tax. People call in and try to point out all the problems. and And again, I think that's good. Where we're missing is we say, oh, well, it's got problems, so we're not going to do that. We do that in our own life. We, we want to make changes, but we set the bar so high, and then we find problems, and then we say, oh, well, I might as well just go back to doing what I was doing. Well, why don't we ever look at what you're doing and point out all the problems and say, my God, why would we keep doing this? This is insane. Well, we don't do that. We put a much higher standard on something we're going to do to improve. We put a much higher standard on that than we do on what we're doing currently. Look at the way you currently eat. And and I can throw myself in here. I get to the point where I don't make health a priority and I just start doing whatever. I'm busy. Just grab whatever I can to eat. And if I were to stop and look at my diet, I could point out a thousand problems with my diet when I get in that mode. Then what I'll do sometimes, I'll say, I need to start eating healthier again. But maybe we're on the road. Maybe I don't have time to go shopping. And I'll say, oh, it's not worth it because I can't do it right. Well, what if you just made it one tiny improvement? For example, I I know people who drink a lot of diet soda. The funny thing is it seems to be the people who drink the most diet soda that have the biggest weight problem. Is, is it because they have a weight problem, they're drinking the diet soda? or Does diet soda actually increase weight somehow? And I've read some studies that it does. I don't really understand it. But but the point is maybe you can't change your entire diet and make it perfect, but maybe you could add one healthy item to your daily menu and take one healthy, unhealthy item away. And so what if you still eat a ton of junk food? I'm not saying it's good to do that, but wouldn't that be better than not changing at all? And we do this in so many areas. People will say, I don't want to become an owner operator if I have to drive a $10,000 truck. Well, that's a choice. You can certainly make that. And I get it. But do you really have to wait until you can afford a brand new truck to become an owner operator? Or could we get started with a system that's not perfect, but at least moves us in the right direction? We do this a lot with money. I see people all the time. Well, there's really no point in me saving any money because I owe all this credit card debt. Well, maybe you should be paying down the credit card debt. Well, I'm trying, but I have too many bills, so it's just going to have to wait. Until I get finally get this car paid off, or it's gonna have to wait until I get a raise. And guess what? It, It never happens that way. But we do it year after year after year. We wait for everything to be perfect, or we wait for it to be just the way we want it to be. And we use that as an excuse for not just making some small changes. You know, one of the things you'll find if you study really successful people their day does not look all that different from unsuccessful people. They sleep, they wake up, they eat, they get dressed, they take a shower some days, they get in a car, they might commute, they sit down in front of a computer, they work, they're on the phone. I mean, really, if you watch the, the daily habits of most successful people, it's hard to find major differences, Now, we could certainly compare the extremes and take somebody who makes a million dollars a year and somebody who's a couch potato and we could see the difference. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people who go to work every day and want to be successful, want to be healthier, want to make more money and can never seem to figure out how. And I think a big, big part of it is that we try too hard. And if we can't make everything right, then we just don't do it. That's the place where you can change and make a huge difference. Just commit to making one tiny change, but doing it every day. And you will see results over time. And then when you see results, you could try one more tiny change. You know, I've said it before. I I think it's why Dave Ramsey is so successful in what he teaches around money because he teaches baby steps and momentum not make some giant change that isn't realistic and you can't stick to I know I said I was going to talk a lot more about money but that point is so critically important I wanted to get that across Uh, tomorrow's show I'll open with with, with where I want to go about money when we get back I'm going to get to some of your calls and questions and see what you want to talk about we'll be right back Kevin Ruff. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. The website is Let'sTruck.com. We're going to get right to some phone calls. Let's head off to Arizona. Rebecca, welcome to the program.
2: Namaste, Kevin.
1: Namaste. What's on your mind today?
2: A truck. <laughs> right. So, so Seth and I, um, are got moms. my brother and I have got my mom's estate in a place where we can think about trucks for a while. And so, anyway, um, we thought we had ruled this truck out. Um, the ads are not as heavy as they were when we did this back over this summer. But maybe we're being too reactionary. We saw a very inexpensive truck. And um, Talked to the guy about. It. I don't want to say how much it is, but I don't want to tip other people off about it.
3: <laughs> okay, all right.
2: In an accessible place. But I Got ran that. I, I I called the guy, and he was totally clueless. I mean, he didn't know what the lifetime mileage was. He thinks he knows what the rears are, but he's not sure. Um, so we ran the rig dig on it. I mean, it's it's a cheap enough truck that you know we would put a lot of money into it. But some of the stuff in the rig dig scared us a little bit. We don't know whether we're being overly cautious or sensible. I want to get your opinion. Um, there, the title's good. It's never been junk. It's never been salvaged. Um, it's had some out-of-service, and part of it's the truck, and part of it's the driver. Um, The things that were the truck were uh, brakes, which I know can be anything from worn shoes to out-of-measurement. There were some (laughs) out-of-service. Excuse me. And um, also, the one that really concerned me, though, that I don't know how expensive of an issue it is, was uh, the steering box Um, had some steering box issues that put it out of service. And the drivers uh, were constantly getting put out of service for things like exceeding their hours, falsifying their logbook, which says to me that they just drove this thing like crazy. Um, It's a a million-mile truck, but it was in-framed 150,000 miles ago. Um, it's an 03, uh, Columbia. It's in California. Um, and the guy's been running it without the controls on it and he somebody drives for him. Um, and so he says, Well, my driver's just getting nervous about getting a ticket and at first I thought, Well, why are you selling the truck? He just inframed framed hundred and fifty thousand miles ago. I mean, because you could retrofit it for fifteen thousand as opposed to whatever it is you're going to have to pay for another one. So at first we had just ruled it out, said, you know what, that truck's just been abused. But as I said, we've just started to get back in. I need to get back in, rework my ad. I need to look some more places. Um, okay. But so what do you here's- think?
1: Here's here's my take when when, you know, and I'll throw some numbers out there. If the trucks had a recent in frame, less than two hundred and fifty thousand miles, kind of the criteria I use, and we can prove it. I mean, there's paperwork to show it. So we don't doubt whether it was done or not. That puts it in the category of trucks that I'm willing to spend under twenty thousand on. If it's over twenty thousand, it's going to have to be really clean also, right. but, but if the truck is under 20,000. It's had a recent in frame. I will overlook almost everything else. In fact, okay. I will look, you know, even transmission. I mean, even if I had to replace a transmission, big deal, six, $7,000, honestly, in the big scheme of things, six or $7,000 in today's world on repairs is no big deal. I mean, emission right. trucks, $10,000 repairs, and we don't even know what's wrong with them half the time. So you just have to think a little differently. Now, if a truck hasn't had an in-frame, then as long as the price is under, say, $12,000, I'll overlook almost everything else as well. Because Mm -hmm. then gearboxes, axles, you know, big, big components, we're still only talking a couple thousand dollars. I mean, so these trucks... It might not be the ideal truck. It might not be the very best truck we could find it at any given time. And we might end up putting more money into it. But when we look at things, you know, for example, there was a caller the other day that, you know, the, the truck had originally been in framed at 650,000 miles, which we thought was early. And then it had to have, have one again at 1.2 million. And they were uh-huh. roughly doing, you know, $10,000 in frames. They, they really weren't going overboard. They were fairly inexpensive. And I did some math. That in frame cost like a penny and a half a mile, okay. even when it only lasted 600,000 miles. Now, most of our in frames, we would spend more than that and they would last a million miles, but you're still talking in frames when it comes right down to it. They only add pennies to our cost per mile. But when we look right. at the difference between trying to run an, a, an emission truck, which we've estimated the best emission trucks on the market are are doing like 13 and 14 cents a mile in maintenance, the best non-emission trucks we can still keep under 10 cents. So, you know, we have a four or five cent difference just in the cost of maintaining these trucks and an in-frame only cost us about a penny a mile. Okay. But don't we look at those two things very differently? We look at an in-frame like it's the end of the world. Uh, and we look at the fact that these new trucks cost 14, 15, 16 cents a mile, and people go, Oh well, so what? It's no big deal. It yes. is. The reason they do it is because the the nickel and diming. They have the cash flow. They can handle it. They might not have the money for an in-frame, so it seems like a major catastrophe. But we really, when we start looking at things by the numbers, so I'm okay, you know, and that's why I said if the truck is under 20 or under 15, I'm even okay buying them at auctions when I can't really see anything about the condition of the truck.
2: Well, that's another thought that I thought about too. Was I had thought about you know an auction. Um, I mean, the last time that we shopped, um, you know, we you know we had the oil sample and all that. And as I told you, we put an offer on the truck and cash offer, and dude sold it for three thousand more. Um, but we're I mean we're prepared to put money in. We're prepared to put in between thirteen thousand five hundred and twenty three. Um, thousand. So I mean we're ready to put money in. I just want to make sure that you know we're putting we're going to have a truck when we get done at at 150,000 on an in-frame Kevin is with the is there any chance that the isn't it what you call the rings not stealing? isn't that what you say?
1: Yeah, if the rings don't seat. I mean, and yeah. the good news. Yeah, is yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if you can get access to this truck and take it to any shop, they can do what's called a blow-by test. Okay. And that, that will tell us if the rings have seated or not. Um, okay. What they do is they pressurize the engine from the top down. And then they measure the amount of pressure that makes it into the crankcase. Because okay. that tells us, because if the rings are seated, we won't get a lot of pressure down in the crankcase. But if we get uh, too much pressure, that tells us that, that it, it's seeping past the rings. And that kind of gives us an idea of the condition of the cylinder kits. Now, there's no magic number. Sometimes people call me and say, here's the results. Is this good or bad? Right. It, it's subjective to how many miles are on it. At, at 150,000 on an in-frame, we would expect this engine to be pretty tight. If an engine has 800,000 miles on it, then I'll, I'll be acceptable of a little more blow-by. Okay, okay.
2: Well, if we get it, I mean, the only thing that's happening at first is it's going straight to a shop. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, you know and um, I mean, the two shops that I've heard that I've heard about um, that would make sense for us is one is the shop over in Clark County by the fairgrounds that some of your listeners have been saying is a real good shop up there in Washington. That would make sense for us or maybe just take it straight to Pittsburgh Power um yeah.
1: yeah um the shop up here i'm just not familiar with they could be great right. i just don't know anything about them
2: yeah 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 i mean we know if we took it to pittsburgh power we'd be taking it to a good place so the other question that i have is that the the a carrier if we were ready to put it right into service which they're like find the truck find a truck find the truck, the truck. Um, right <laughs> um if we were ready to put it right into service, they would pick up some tags for us to be able to move it, but we're not okay. ready to put it into service. So, how expensive and complicated is that to get it's not. tags to move it? Okay. You can get a what temporary. We,
1: what we do? It, it, um, just get a temporary. And getting okay. a temporary in almost any state is a breeze. Uh, usually, just walk in with a title. Uh, a, or a bill of sale, walk in, they'll usually issue a temporary. Some states are 30 days, some are 45, but it, it's pretty okay. easy. to. Okay. And do you do that in the
2: state that it's in or the state where you live?
1: Uh, it just depends uh, which one's easier. And I would call both and check okay. because we're ultimately okay. going to replace, you know, the, the temporary anyway, so it doesn't make a big deal. But I would call both, just get a feel for, which one. You know, every state is just a little different on some of these rules, and I I can't keep up with them all. I'm going to get to a break. Stick around. We've got lots more stuff. Kevin Rothenberg. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. The website is Let'sTruck.com. I'm going to get right back to some phone calls. Let's go to Pennsylvania. Ben, it's your turn.
3: Hey, Kevin. Thanks for taking my call.
1: What's on this your mind is, today?
3: Uh, well, it's actually a question for my brother. He, uh, he runs tracks with dump trucks up here in northeastern PA, and he owns a lot of coal and salt. And He's got a 97 Freightliner with an 8LL double load transmission. And 456 rears, and they're doing a lot more highway running now, and he, he's trying to get more fuel mileage out of it. He is asking me what if he went to like a 13 speed and 390s, if that would help him any. Or...
1: Now, is he changing the entire operation, or is there still going to be a lot of off road?
3: No, when we first bought it, it was all off road. We we're doing a lot of na- a lot of hauling for the natural gas industry. But okay. now that's kinda of died up so it's all um you know, they're getting four or five hundred miles a day now compared to okay. one yeah.
1: or two hundred. So, so we're we're really talking about over the road kind of stuff then. And what yeah. what year and what engine?
3: It's uh it's a ninety seven Freightliner with a twelve seven Detroit.
1: Okay. Um three nineties I think are a great gear for that truck if you're willing to drive really slow, like under sixty. I've got three ninety okay mine at 57 you're right at about 1400 which is ideal if you were going to drive the truck all the time from 55 to 60 i'd say absolutely go with the 390s works great the okay. other option you're going to go to a 13 speed is to go to 279s now i would never do that if there's going to be more off-road because we do we do minimize our startability somewhat it's not well, a problem if you're so on that's road. That's he's worried if, about, too. Yeah, so, so if startability is an issue, then you really don't want to do that. If you're going to be heavy, off-road, that kind of stuff, uh, you're going to put too much stress on on the drive line and the clutch and everything else by using okay. that. So then I would say the two best choices, 390s, if you can keep the speed under 60 most of the time. If All you're right. going to go you know, a little faster, 60 to 65, I would go three
3: seventies. Okay. Yeah. Cause they're, cause a lot of their stuff is that uh, they gotta, they gotta hammer down cause they got the receivers aren't open nearly as long as their shippers are. So they're, and they gotta get so many loads per day. So they're always up there, you know, 65, 70 mile an hour.
1: Well, then I'd be looking at three fifty-fives. Okay. And then here's the, the, If we go to three fifty fives, if and the thing they have to realize is, you can build a fast truck or you can build a fuel efficient truck. You really can't build both. I mean, Uh, we can. I
3: think that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to build both.
1: Well, we could do better if we could go with that really, really high gear ratio, like the two seventy nines. We could use, you know, 11th gear for one speed, 12th gear for another, 13th for another. We end up with a huge range and right. even though at, at, I don't care what gearing we put on a truck at 70 miles an hour, fuel mileage is going to drop way off. There's no question, right. but, but if we gear it right and we set it up right, it will still achieve the best possible fuel mileage at 70. See, some people okay. go, well... I'm going to drive 70, so I don't care about fuel mileage. Well, that's stupid. I don't care if you're going to drive 80. I can, really? I can better fuel mileage at 80 if I work at it than if I just ignore it. So why would I ignore it? But okay. the problem with that that strategy is it does affect that startability, which could be an issue. Um, okay. so, so if he needs to drive fast, then we need to look at 355s, running that with a 13 speed. And if he ever gets a chance and he can go slower, now you could drop into 12th and go all the way down to about 55 pretty easily with those gears.
3: Okay. Now what about um, like return on investment? Cause I mean, it's an old truck and he doesn't know whether to dump all this money into this one or just try to trade it in on something a little more suited for him.
0: Uh,
1: here's the thing. He knows the truck. And that's a big, big plus. Now, I don't know the truck. I don't know if it's been a great truck maintenance-wise. I don't know if you uh, really like the truck. I, you know, those are the kind of factors I would look at. I, look, I can put rear ends and a transmission in a truck for about 15000 Actually, a little less if I shop around. That's not a big investment. I mean, we can right. make that money back in no time. If we go out and buy another truck, I certainly don't want anything with emissions. So now we have right. to look older or older. You're probably going to end up with the same thing that he already has. You're going to end up with an older truck saying, should I put money into it or not? Or okay. or you go buy a glider, uh, which starts to get really expensive. So now that $15,000 to change the driveline on this doesn't look like any big deal.
3: <laughs> yeah, yep, so, oh. okay, well, uh, so it
1: would really come I, down to what how he feels about the truck, but I always lean towards keeping those older trucks, unless this thing has just been a maintenance nightmare, and he hates it, and even that we could fix. but i I would lean towards keeping this one and just putting the money into it. Let's head off to Houston. Ed, welcome to the program.
4: Hey Kevin Fairtex, now and uh, God bless the porta potties.
1: There you go. What's on your mind today?
4: <laughs> well, I was going to remind everybody. You know, it's less than two months away. And we got mats coming up in Louisville. I mean, getting close. So truckers procrastinate, and that's that's the nature of the beast. That we just don't know where we'll be at that time and all that. But if you really want to make plans, you've got to start making them now because of you know budgeting and money and everything. It's always a good thing to think ahead. And I think, you know I you, think you, that's you, a that's a because, big reminder.
1: Yeah, people tell me this all the time about truck shows or even about our CMC. And, you know, it doesn't much matter the CMC now because we're sold out every year. But there was a time when we were trying to figure out what can we do to get more people to come. And I would say to people, why don't you just put this in your calendar and make it a priority? And they'd be like, well, I don't know where I'm going to be that week. Well, you would know where we were going to be if you put it in your calendar and make it a priority. Obviously... There's nothing else in your calendar that week. You know, if there is, some people, maybe it's their anniversary. Well, I get that. You've got something to do that week. But if you don't and you're just saying, well, I'm going to wait and see what happens. Well, I can tell you what's going to happen. The odds of you being in Kansas City that week and spontaneously coming, that's not going to happen. Same thing with the truck shows. If you want to go, make it a priority, put it on your calendar and say, that's where I'm going to be that week.
4: Yeah, and it's and and then you're talking about making it a priority is budgeting as well. If you if you want to be able to take that time off and you say, Well, I can't afford the time off, well, maybe that's a problem you're having with your money. You need to look at, you know, hey, can I afford to take time off? But I mean that that's that's like you're saying, making it a priority and saying, Hey, I need to work this much each each day or each week or each month so that I could take these days off. I mean, I, my calendar's full up up until November. I've already got everything planned out. I'm not scheduled any more time off. I've already done it. You know, that's that's it. That's what you do.
1: (laughs) And you know what's nice about that? Now you can forget about it. You don't have to think about that stuff anymore. Your mind is now free to think about more important things.
4: You know, and it's, it's, I don't have to worry about whether or not I want to see people or not, or, or whether or not I need to call somebody and say, Hey, let's get together because I ain't seen you while. No, I'm going to see you next month because we planned that back uh, six months ago. (laughs)
3: <laughs> yeah, and,
1: and, you know, in this industry, you know, we do meet people from all over the country. I, you know, I have far more friends in the trucking industry than I have here locally, but I only get to see them a couple times a year. So I, I do make plans to be in certain places just so I can keep those relationships going. You know, meet up with people I like to spend time with, and you know, the truck shows for us are totally hectic. They always are, but. I do hear that a lot from people. They say, boy, I've been trying to go to the Louisville Truck Show for years. Well, what does that mean? You've been trying. Well, you know, I was going to go last year, but I wasn't anywhere near it when that week came around. Well, of course you weren't because you didn't plan on being there. You're you're just hoping random circumstances are going to work for you. And I usually find that if that's the case, that's how people tend to run their whole life and their business. They just, they're, they're in reality mode all the time they're not planning
4: right yep well uh uh i lost my train of thought now i'm done all right Uh, (laughs) right.
1: good stuff i'm coming up on a break anyway so yeah you know i don't we don't have any big big plans for the truck show this year i i don't think i'm gonna do a seminar it's not set in stone yet but We've tried the last couple of years and doing a seminar at the Mid-America Truck Show is just not a pleasant experience. We've tried to work with show management. They don't care much about the the seminar part. And I kind of understand why Most, most groups or vendors or people that want to put on seminars are doing it as a sales tool to sell stuff. And I've sat through some of their presentations and, you know, I, I do a lot of presentations and I sit through a lot and I do feel qualified to judge many of them. And most of them are horrible. They just are. They're just they're not even good sales presentations. Um, so because of that, I don't think show management puts much effort into it and it becomes kind of a problem. I'll talk a little bit more about that when I get back and about what might be going on at the truck show. Stick around. We'll be right back. I'm Kevin Roth. Real quick, we're heading into segment four. So just remember at the end of this segment, I say I'm done. I've got to get out of here, but we'll come right back and start a second hour. And I'll give you an update on the call status. Here we go. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. We're down to the final segment. So I'm going to get back to the calls here in. Just a couple minutes, you know, again, talking about the seminars, it's really difficult to do them at Matt's. They schedule the seminars back to back, minute to minute. By the time you get in and try to get set up and everybody's already waiting, if you have any technical difficulties at all, you have no time to really work on them. Um, And then you've got to get out of there for the next person. And we've tried booking multiple hours back to back. It just doesn't work. And and as much as I'd love doing the seminars and we're able to do them free at the truck shows, I really don't think I'm going to do one this year. We're looking at other possibilities, uh, but nothing set in stone yet. Uh, 90% sure we will be set up in the Papa John's parking lot with our studio trailer. So we'll be broadcasting from uh, the Papa John's parking lot. Now remember it's, uh, East. Co- oh, wait a minute. We don't do the night shows anymore. So, uh, let's see on Thursday and Friday of that week, we're going to have to figure out when we'll do our recordings and uh, we'll figure something out. And then on Saturday, we'll be doing the show live from the parking lot. Um, hopefully the weather's a little better this year. Last year, I was totally bundled up and I still froze through the whole, uh, the whole show in the afternoon, but we'll do it. Uh, and uh, we'll keep you updated on how we're going to handle all that. Let's go to Tennessee. Rob, welcome to the program.
5: Hi, Kevin. Thanks for everything you do for us out oh, here. Appreciate
1: You're it. Welcome. what can I help you with um, today?
5: I'm having problems. I'm looking for a, a rolling resistance number on a Firestone tire. It's uh FD691. It's supposed to be a new Firestone tire. And they claim it's supposed to be a low rolling resistance
1: tire. Yeah, here's here's the problem with their claims. Um, they don't put a number on it for us, and I don't care if they use Michelin's method. You know, because Michelin's rolling resistance numbers they created all that themselves. That's their chart. It's their index. I don't care if they use that one. Make up your own. Give us something to actually measure what you call low rolling resistance because. Lots of tire companies love using the smart way approval. But once you understand how the smart way approval works, it's the stupidest system I've ever seen. In order to be a smart way approved, fuel efficient tire, all you have to do. Uh, now I'm going to remember the exact number. It's either five or 10 percent. You just have to be five or 10 percent better than the best selling tire in that category. Who came up with that? That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Why didn't they say you have to be 5 or 10% better than the average rolling resistance at least? <clears throat> best selling? <clears throat> what the hell does that tell us? It doesn't tell us anything. Some of the best selling tires on the market are the absolute worst for rolling resistance. And all you have to do to be smart way approved is be a little better than that. That's very, very misleading. So we need a number. Unfortunately, nobody else is giving us numbers except Michelin. And with all the new tires hitting the market, they can only crank out so many tests a day. And unfortunately, this tire hasn't been tested yet. Now, all I can do is look at Firestone's history for low rolling resistance. It's almost non-existent. They just don't build many tires that are low rolling resistance. If we look at the closest we can come to this would be an FD 690. You're looking at an FD 691. I Logically, that might be the next progression in this tire's life, but the 690 has a rolling resistance of 159.
0: Okay.
1: So here's, here's my answer to this. If I can't get the number, I won't buy the tire. I, I'm just not willing to take that much of a risk. I don't care what they tell me about. It's fuel efficient, low rolling resistance. Until you can tell me the number, th- I, then I can't make any comparisons. I could be making a mistake and, and going worse than what I have now. So my rule of thumb is I don't care how impressed I am with a tire until I can get a rolling resistance number. I just won't buy it.
5: Okay. Alrighty. Thank you. That answers my question.
1: (laughs) You're welcome. Thanks for the call. So, you know, I, I try to, I check Michelin's numbers every day to see what new tires are on there, but that one's not there yet. Let's go to Virginia. Marvin, welcome to the program.
0: How's it going today, Kevin?
1: Good. What can I help you with?
0: Uh, Well, I just wanted to give you a little bit on my situation and see if, uh, LLC would benefit me at all. Uh, I'm leased a Landstar, and over the last three years I'm averaging gross and right at a hundred and eighty a year. And okay. my my net pre tax I've been averaging out to about forty five percent of that. So I'm I'm around eighty, eighty one thousand a year net before tax. And I'm between state and federal I'm paying around fifteen thousand a year in tax. Okay. And I just one, don't know if LLC would benefit me at all.
1: One quick question, that 80 net number, is that what ends up on the bottom line of your schedule C, meaning if there's any depreciation, that's already taken out and your per diem is also taken
0: out? That's already taken out, yes.
1: Oh, then absolutely. You need to go incorporate yesterday.
0: Okay. And, and what are the benefits of that?
1: Well, right now you're you're paying Social Security and Medicare tax on that full let's just call it eighty thousand. Let's say you're netting eighty. And you have to pay Social Security and Medicare tax on that. And you have to pay both halves. So on eighty thousand, you end up paying uh point one five six, I believe. You About $12,000 of the tax you're paying every year is just Social Security and Medicare. But if we incorporate, then what we're allowed to do is we're allowed to set a salary. In fact, we have to set a salary. You have to start getting paid from the corporation as an employee with taxes taken out. And we do have to take out Social Security and Medicare. Because you own the corporation, you're still going to be paying both halves. Here's the difference. We don't have to pay all of that 80000 as salary. We can pick what what the IRS calls a reasonable amount for the amount of work you did. So we could take the number of miles you drive. We could say, okay, we're going to pay you $0.40 a mile as a driver. It's a good round number. And about how many miles a year do you drive, roughly? Uh Uh-oh. Did I? Oh, I lost him. Oh, that's too bad. Well, I'm not gonna. Well, I'll continue. But let's assume he's driving 110,000 miles to get that rate, right, which wouldn't be out of the question. Uh, and we're gonna pay 40 cents a mile, so we're gonna. He's gonna end up making yeah, forty three thousand, forty four thousand, right in that area somewhere. Uh, which means we'll pay Social Security and Medicare tax on, let's say, call it 45000 and we have 35000 left that we don't pay Social Security and Medicare tax on, so that generates a savings of about, uh, let me figure this out, uh, 35000 if we're going to do uh, 0.156, that would mean we would have a savings of about $5,500. So it's going to cost you 2000 maybe to run the corporation every year. You still end up saving about $3,500 in tax. That, that's pretty significant. So that's why we would do it. In fact, that's the only reason I do corporations and LLCs. I I don't believe that there's any real liability protection like we so often hear but there is clearly tax savings to be had in forming an LLC and then having it taxed as an S corp. We form the LLC because it's a little simpler it's more simple to set up, the rules are better, easier to understand, they give us more leeway and legal things we can do. So we form it as an LLC, but then the IRS says you have to decide how you want to be taxed and we will choose an S Corp and then we can generate these savings. All right. So I'm looking at the clock and we are just about out of time. I'm going to have to wrap this up and get out of here. Uh, Check out the website. It's letstruck.com. Check out our discussions on Facebook. You know, one of the things I'm I'm talking about doing is I, I want to use Facebook even more and more for communicating ideas, sharing our knowledge. And we just have to drive the haters out. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about them, but we need more people to go into those forums, stand their ground, ask their questions without worrying about somebody, you know, saying it's a stupid question. Just grow a little bit thicker skin, and we don't have to ignore them, confront them, I don't care, but let's not let them drive us out again of a tool that works well. So come on over to Facebook and get more involved in the discussions. Be safe, be profitable, do the hard work, and master the journey. Good night, everyone. I'm Kevin Rothman. All right, we're going to go ahead and start a second hour of recording. Right now, it looks like we've, uh, we've probably got enough questions. If it if, uh, looks like we're going to run out, I'll let you know. Here we go.
0: Your money, your taxes, your truck, and your road to success in
3: the trucking industry.
6: This is Trucking Business and Beyond, the show that puts the
1: money where it belongs.
0: Back in your pocket.
1: Welcome to the program. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. The website is Let'sTruck.com. The show, well, it's all about the business of trucking. It's also all about making you a better you. So we do talk a lot about self-improvement, ways you can be better. We tie it all up around the trucking industry and the trucking lifestyle. So if you have questions about trucks, money, personal development, financial planning, fuel mileage, maintenance, you name it. You're in the right place because that's what we do here. We take your calls, we answer your questions, and we have discussions about all of those issues and many more. So check it out. Uh, I'm going to get to the calls in just a couple minutes. I want to talk a little bit about a, uh, a topic that Kenny Long tackled Uh, on his recent podcast, and he's going to do a a much more in-depth show about it coming up next week. Uh, And if you're not familiar with any of our podcasts, we're starting new shows all the time. You can find them at Let'sTruck.com. Just go to Let'sTruck.com. You'll see the network there. Check it out. But Kenny did a great show. Um, and, And at the end, he was just talking a little bit about what we're seeing happen with rates right now and how that ties into fuel prices. And and again, uh, coming up this week, this coming week, next week, I guess, Kenny will be doing a more in-depth show on that. And and his information is rock solid. So make sure you check it out. I'm just going to hit on some of the highlights because I have been seeing a lot of people and they're kind of confused right now. I've heard a lot of talk uh, and I've seen a lot of discussions on Facebook about rates going down and everybody wondering what's happening. Is is it the economy? Is it supply and demand? You know, Kevin said we're going to have strong rates for five years. You know, I have said that. It's pure speculation on my part, but it's speculation based on a lot of research. But here's the thing you have to remember, that all rates, all rates, are affected by the fuel price. Contract, spot market, everything. So Kenny did a great job of breaking down the rates a year ago and comparing them to the rates today. But he he calculated how the fuel price affected that. And he did it exactly right. He used all the right formulas. And what he found out was even though rates are down over what they were a year ago, if you look at the the correct number, the fuel price adjusted number, we're setting records on rates right now. High. We're, we're at all-time highs on rates. So it's very deceiving. And it's easy to look at the rates and start to think the sky is falling, but it's not the sky falling, it's fuel prices. And fuel prices have a huge impact on rates. So I would love to see fuel prices go back up. Timing would be wonderful if it went back up right now. What's happening is fuel prices dropped so fast that the rates take much longer to adjust. And that's a good thing for us. When fuel prices are going down, we can benefit in the short term. When fuel prices go up, we usually get hit a little bit in the short term, but I'd still rather see those fuel prices hang out around that $4 a gallon range. Doesn't seem to hurt the economy much, and it really increases profits. But just know that right now, rates are still really strong. And if you want a better explanation of it, be sure to tune into uh, Trucking with Authority with Kenny Long, uh, Tuesday night. And again, if you want schedules, phone numbers, check out the website. It's let's com. I'm going to head off to Arkansas to get started today. Karen, welcome to the program.
7: Thanks, Kevin. Um, two quick things. Number one, um, I had my yearly physical done and on my blood work, I came back that I was vitamin D deficient. I And I looked at my doctor, and I said, you got to be joking me. I sit in a truck. I've got sun all day long. And she told me that it's because I just don't get enough vitamin D anymore from the sun because that sunshine coming through the windshield just is not doing it.
1: Well, part of the reason is it's somewhat filtered. You know, our glass, it's why when you sit in your truck all day long, if the window's rolled up, you don't get a sunburn. But if you stick your arm out the window, you get burned. That glass actually. Filter sunlight, and and I don't know exactly which spectrums, but my guess is just because the glass being there really minimizes the amount of vitamin D, um, and you don't get vitamin D from the sunshine. You know this. I'm just explaining it. Your body produces it because of the reaction of sunlight on your skin. So, right. part of the problem when we're driving, we don't tend to have a lot of skin exposed the light is being filtered. So it's changing the way it affects our skin. And I don't think our bodies produce enough vitamin D with that filtered light. And, you know, depending on what time of day it is, you're not getting any sunlight on you in the winter time, the days get much, much shorter and that sunlight gets weaker. So uh, clearly, um, uh, it's good to know that you've got a vitamin D deficiency. Now, I believe that the best way to get vitamin D is through sunshine. So if I were you, I would just work on out of the truck, you know, anytime it's warm enough, try to get as much skin exposed as you can put up with depending on the weather, get as much sunshine as you can. The other thing that a lot of people don't realize is that the darker skinned you are, the more sunlight you need to produce the same amount of vitamin D redheads have it made when it comes to this. And I'm redheaded and fair skinned. It doesn't take much sunlight for my body to produce vitamin D at all, but somebody who's really dark tans really well, that, that tan is actually a filter for sunlight. So our skin doesn't burn, but it's also filtering out the effects of vitamin D. So, The darker skinned you are, the more time you have to spend in the sun to get the same amount of vitamin D.
7: Right. Right. So I just wanted the drivers to know because vitamin D does also, from my understanding, help with um, metabolism and weight loss and stuff.
1: All kinds of stuff. Yeah. You know, what we're finding is, and I've said this for years, we still don't know enough about nutrition, not even close. And, and what happens, and, and this is why I'm not a big fan of supplements. We'll take something like garlic and we'll study garlic and find out that garlic has all these health benefits. Then they'll try to identify what compound it is in garlic, providing the health benefits. And they'll try to make a supplement out of that one compound. Well, the problem is there's about 6,000 compounds in garlic. And I don't think it's any one that has the benefit. I think it's all of them working together that creates the benefit. And I think when we start pulling things out as supplements, we're missing out on things we don't even know are there. What they're finally starting to realize is that, yeah, we said vitamin D was good for your bones and your teeth, but it also is a crucial part of so many other functions going on in your body. So I still believe that one, we need to know what we're getting, what we're not getting. And two, we need to work hard to get those nutrients from its most natural source. Now, if you've done all that and you say it's just not working, then I would recommend a supplement. But in my opinion, supplements should be the last, uh, last resort for a lot of reasons. One, they're not, we don't know what's in them. We just don't. Um, I, I've, I've read some re- reports of over the counter medications and supplements, including illegal drugs to make themselves work better. Um, uh, so we, we've just got to be careful. I, I, I try not to take supplements. Occasionally I'll do it here and there if I think I really need to. Uh, but th- this is a good topic. I, you know, it's one I've never really thought about. Vitamin D is critically important and. Even though we are outside, we really don't get a lot of sunshine in this job.
7: That's right. And now this is totally off base from what we just talked about, okay? I need to know about 2-inch offset and 0-offset, okay? My understanding, Lloyd's been listening to you, that if I have a 2-inch offset rim, that I can flip it and it's almost a 0-offset then, correct? Yep. Yep. And it's okay to do that.
0: Absolutely. It
7: doesn't cause cause any more wear and tear on the axle, right?
1: No, it causes less, much less, because that's the whole point. We've got to get that wheel back inboard so we're not putting all that stress on the axle and the bearing. And here's the thing. When, When I first heard this and I went and looked at rims and, you know, we played around with some rims, I couldn't see any problem with doing this. But just to be sure... I always consult my experts. So I ran this by Mike Beckett. Mike Beckett says, Been doing it for years. They do it all the time. No problems whatsoever.
7: Okay. Thank
1: you. You're welcome. Thanks for the call. Music's playing. I've got to get to a break, but we'll be right back. Don't go away. Kevin Roth. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. The number, the website is let's truck.com. You know, the, the issue of vitamin D and and sunshine, sunshine really is the best way to get vitamin D. It's tough to get through foods. It's why we add vitamin D to milk. Uh, That started around the turn of the century, not this past century, the one before that uh, because children living in cities Our cities had so much pollution and so much smog back around 1900 that we were seeing all kinds of health-related problems because of lack of vitamin D, because no sunlight was getting through. You know, we talk about the environment today and how we're hurting it so bad, but look back at history. We've made some serious improvements. We started putting vitamin D in milk because of pollution. That's how bad our cities were polluted back then. You couldn't see daylight in cities like Pittsburgh and Chicago and the steel mills. And But there just aren't many foods that vitamin D occurs naturally. And I'm not wild about the supplements. I mean, if they're going to put vitamin D in the milk, why don't I just take a vitamin D supplement? So a lot of times they'll talk about dairy to get your vitamin D, but you're only getting a supplement. Dairy doesn't have vitamin D on its own that much. Um, really oily fish, um, salmon, trout, swordfish, uh, mackerel, herring, sardines, um, those hot fish is really high in oil. The problem there is most fishes high in oil tend to also have very strong tastes and a lot of people don't like those fish. I'd love them. Uh, mushrooms, portobello mushrooms are actually a pretty good source of vitamin D uh caviar i don't think we're gonna eat a lot of that eggs not too bad actually um other than that though uh it's really tough to get vitamin d out of foods so sunshine is the way to go let's get to some phone calls let's go to oklahoma kenneth welcome to the program
8: yes sir thank you for taking my call
1: can i help you with today
8: I'm having an issue. I've got a a, a glider kit with a 60-series Detroit in it. And at 16,300 miles, we had to do an in-frame on it.
1: Ouch. That How was, come?
8: That was not pleasant. Uh, we lost number six piston. And uh, they did, they
1: did the piston break?
8: To, uh, we're not, not real sure if it broke. Just the rings were pretty much gone. Cylinder sleeve was scored. Once we took the head and everything off, the cam bearings had to be replaced, the cam, the rods and mains. It was about 12 days of being down.
1: Did Did anybody try to figure out why? I mean, how, how did bearings go bad in 16,000 miles?
8: That I do not know. That had the oil that was in the engine at that time had less than 9,000 miles on it since I had changed it. And I really don't know.
1: Wow. that That is bizarre. Um, it, I'm assuming the same shop that built the engine is also the one that tore it apart and inspected it. Am I correct?
8: No, sir. No, sir.
1: So it is a different uh, shop. So... Yes. So that, and the reason I'm getting to that is, if it were the same shop, they they tend to want to cover up any mistakes they made and minimize their role in the problem. But if it's a new shop, then they don't have any skin in the game, and and I would trust them to say, "Can you tell me what went wrong here? I mean, why did this happen? Because this is so far off the charts to now to to have a ring break or a piston break." in a short amount of time and wipe out a cylinder, that's not out of the question. I mean, that I could certainly see happening unless that created the bearing problem, which I I was trying to think of how I just don't understand how bearings get wiped out in 16,000 miles. When most bearings today last 1.3 million and still look good.
8: My issue now is I've got about 13,000 miles on it since the end frame. And this morning, I put my 11th gallon of oil in it since
1: that entry. Oh, my God. Oh. now you know, And I know what they're going to say. They're going to say it's not broken yet. You've got to give it time. And, and, and you do. We have to give it some time. We have to be fair. But I can tell you the odds of this thing correcting itself are almost slim to none. I I, all we we've dealt with this issue many, many, many times over the years, brand new engines that do this rebuild engines that do it. But the history is if we get to 20,000 miles and that oil consumption hasn't slowed down, in my experience, it's probably not going to. Now, almost everybody that rebuilds engines has their own criteria for what they will do in this case. They'll usually make you track the oil consumption against fuel consumption for a certain number of miles, and then if the oil consumption is over what they consider acceptable, then they'll warranty it. I don't know what the numbers are here. I don't know. what Have they told you what they want you to do yet as far as how long we need to let this thing go?
8: They want me to go 50,000 miles since the end frame.
1: All right. So I
8: uh, I'm tracking my oil consumption daily.
1: Good. Good. And that, and that's what's going to have to happen and and you know, I I don't think we need to go all the way to 50, but if that's their criteria, I'd be okay with it because look, this is going to cost them a lot of money. And and it should. If they've made a mistake, it and, and somebody did, they need to pay for it. But I'm okay with giving them the time. 50,000 isn't out of the question. Uh, You know, you might want to negotiate because it never hurts to ask. Let's see if you're using a gallon every almost thousand miles uh, in another, let's call it 30 more thousand miles, you're going to be buying roughly 30 gallons of oil. Now, I wouldn't be buying anything expensive. I'd be buying plain old 1540 Rotella as cheap as I could get it. But you're still going to have some cost in oil here. You may want to negotiate, hey, if if I'm going to do this, we're going to run all the way to 50000 split the oil cost with me. But in the big scheme of things, the oil cost isn't going to be that big of a deal, really. Uh, I would give them their time, track it. I think the odds of it fixing itself are pretty slim, and they're going to have to go back in and do the cylinder kits again.
8: Okay, on on that line, it's due for an oil change. It's been 10000 I took the break-in oil out at about forty-five hundred after the end frame, and I've okay. been about ninety-five hundred since then. I'm running Shell Rotella that the manufacturer recommended. Should I switch?
0: No.
1: No, just Rotella's fine. It's not expensive. It's you know we just want any any oil that has the right API is just fine for this. I mean. We, you could go buy cheap bargain basement oil, and as long as it's got the right APIs and the right viscosity, short-term, we'd be just fine. So stick with Rotella. You know, go through their test period, but I have a feeling you're going to be back in for another inframe.
8: I am too, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, I wish I had better news, but, you know, I, I just don't see many of these. Now, what I have seen... I have seen rebuilt engines use a lot of oil in the first 10,000. The first couple times, you know, you'll use a gallon real quick. I've seen that, but it usually clears itself up within 10,000 miles. You're almost double that now. Uh, You know, all we can do is wait and see. Okay, it I'll is unfortunate. Um, it's really unfortunate when it happens more than once. Like I said, I've seen brand new engines do this. Certainly seen rebuild engines do it, but uh, it doesn't make it any easier when you're the one that has to go through it. And I've been through it myself. I've had one truck do this. Let's go to uh, Chicago. Larry, welcome to the program.
6: How are you doing, Kevin?
1: Doing good. What's on your mind today?
6: Um. Have- got an 06 Freightliner Columbia with a 14 liter Detroit in it coming up on a million miles and I want to schedule an in-frame only because I think it's better to schedule it than wait till it breaks down and I have to get it towed somewhere
1: good idea and
6: I'm kicking around the idea of either a having an in-frame done or b going with a Detroit long block and I was just wondering what your opinion is on that
1: Um, I don't see the point in buying another block if the one we have is fine. And how long have you owned this truck?
6: Uh, Five years.
1: So you've put most of the miles on it.
6: 600,000.
1: Yeah. Okay. Quite a bit. Um, If this engine hasn't been a problem, um, if it's been relatively well taken care of, good oil changes or, you know, oil sampling and monitoring results, that kind of thing, the block should be just fine. I mean, an in-frame is so much cheaper. And the first time we do it, I almost never look at anything other than an in-frame. So okay. I'm going to get you a break. Hold that thought, though. I'm going to come back and we'll make sure that uh, helps you out. Stick around. I'm Kevin Roth. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. The website is Let'sTruck.com. Before the break, I was talking with Larry in Chicago. Larry, does that make sense?
6: Um, yeah, I was just wondering if you thought, like, for instance, a downtime would be faster or less downtime doing a long block, where they just pull it out, switch a few components over and drop it back in versus, say, 12 to 14 days on an in frame.
1: Well, here's the thing. If a shop is good, an in-frame can be done in a day. Honestly, I've seen them done in, you know, less than 48 total hours. It's really not that hard. And it's actually a little more predictable than a block. You know, you start pulling blocks. At, now, I know shops that could do a block in a day. Uh, you know, Fitzgerald has is, is got that whole process down pat, especially on something like a Coronado. They know how to take the whole front end right off nice and quick, drop an engine in and off you go. But, you know, most shops aren't that motivated anyway. So most shops, even with the long block, it's not unusual to be in there for a week. By the time, you know, they get you in, they prep things, they do stuff. You know, they, it's usually not going to happen in a day. It's going to be a week and any good shop should be able to do an in-frame in a week. Okay. So I, yeah, you're going to pay a lot more for the long block and I just don't think you're getting anything any better. So my opinion, but for me, the first in frame is always just that an in frame. If we get to the second or third life of an engine, then I might consider doing an out of frame, but I still would probably want to keep my own block. Let's go to uh, Pennsylvania. Daniel, welcome to the program.
5: Hey, Mr. Rutherford. Um, There was a lady in the other uh, uh, show that was talking about a Columbia in California, and she didn't know know the gears, according to the seller, but on the Columbia's, on the passenger side, there's a panel that says Columbia on it. If you were to pull that panel back, it it does pop out, and behind there is more information, and about nine times out of ten, I found the axle ratio in there kind of like how you find that same information in a glove box of a Cascadia.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's a good, good tip. And it's worth looking at. The problem is especially on really old trucks, you know, we're talking nineties. So the trucks are, you know, coming up on 20 years old. Mm-hmm. It's very, very possible. The gears have been changed and nobody knows it. So I, I, I normally, I will, I will look there. Um, and and then if I can look there and drive the truck, I could verify that. Yeah, that's probably correct. Just based on the RPMs. But like I had a caller the other day, they weren't sure if the gears had been changed. They didn't know the final ratio in the transmission. And without a definite on one of those numbers, I can't calculate the other one. So that's normally when I'll say, look, if this is important, if, if you need to know this before you buy the truck then we need to verify. We either need to pull a cover off and we can physically look at the gears and tell you what gear ratio it is. Or we can, you know, jack the truck up, tie a string around the driveshaft. I can usually get pretty close with that method. Um, but, But for me, again, it's good to look there. And if we look there and it seems to jive with what we're seeing for RPMs, then we can probably count on it. But many times, we've got to do something else to verify that number's correct.
5: Gotcha. And I had a a carryover thought from a a conversation, a a theme that you had going on last week. And it kind of made it, I got to wondering if uh, you say that we're constantly changing. It it makes me wonder if things, because of the amount of information that we get in, things like ADD were kind of, our bodies and minds are going at a million mile an hour if that's kind of like an evolutionary, if you will, um, adjustment to our new environment.
1: Hey, absolutely. It is. The, the thing about evolution though, is it happens over such a long period of time that a hundred years from now, I think people will look back and have a much more clear picture of what was going on right now. But I, I believe there is no question that the last 200 years will will signal a huge change in our bodies physically. We're just not going to see it for a long time. We're seeing the effects of it now, but it's not big enough to measure, I don't believe. But the the brain, and, and which is what I've been doing a lot of research on lately, the brain, our brain has evolved dramatically over time. But it's happened over, I mean, we have a whole new section of brain that our ancestors didn't have the neocortex. And, and that's the part of our brain that controls logical thinking, rational thought, decision-making. Uh, but that's that's new. That didn't always exist for humans. We actually, our brain got bigger and we evolved a whole new layer. Uh, and, and I think that what's going on right now, and, and when I say right now, I really mean the last 200 years. I think the industrial revolution certainly will change the way our brains function and the digital revolution will have a huge impact. You know, we're, we're talking about wearable devices now that monitor all these functions going on in our body and that'll change the way we behave. It'll change the way we think and the way we think will eventually physically alter our brain but I, I think it's going to take a long time before we can actually see it and measure it. But you can look at that. You know, you mentioned ADD and I, I think this is our, the two biggest problems we're facing in the digital age. One is our attention span. Um, we have the attention span of a gnat now. I, and I catch myself doing this. I, I don't watch a lot of videos on Facebook. I don't have patience for videos. I want to read it. Let me read cause then I can scroll through. I can skim. I can get to what I want on the video. I don't know what's coming. I have to sit there and watch. But every now and then I'll be scrolling through the news feed and I'll click on a video. And and it's so bad. If the video's three minutes, I'll like three minutes. I don't have time for that. And I'll move on. Three minutes? Come on, really? Um, most of the time I won't take time because 99 videos out of a hundred are on Facebook aren't worth three minutes of my time, but it goes to show how we're, we're so driven now, and there's so many distractions. So I think that's our first problem, is that it distracts us from thinking things through. We're, we're cont- I've, I, I pay attention to the way people communicate, and I'm noticing people around me aren't communicating as good as they used to. It, it's getting harder and harder to get a point across when you're talking to somebody because everybody's so distracted. It's like, I just said that. And, and then somebody will question me and I'll think, were you not listening? And I know what's happening. They're being distracted by their phone, by Facebook, by tweets, by. So it is having a huge impact on us. The other place, and, and I'm just starting to learn this, is that all of these screens that we stare at all day long, computer screens, iPad screens, GPS screens, TV screens, every one of those, that light mimics Daylight. And it affects our sleep and it's becoming an epidemic. So I I think I I actually started something just this week based on what I've learned. I am going to work really, really hard not to be in a room with any kind of a digital screen on after six o'clock at night, six o'clock. I'm done, you know, even TV. And, and that's going to be a little hard. There's some TV shows I like to watch, but I'm going to schedule other times to do it. Um, the good news is reading on a Kindle Paperwhite doesn't have that impact. It's a totally different kind of light. So I can still read on my Kindle. But there's no question all this technology is having a huge impact on us.
5: All right. Well, you have yourself a great day, Mr. Rutherford. Now we're just going to chill back here and listen.
1: All right. Thanks for the call. I, I know I got a little long-winded on that, but I, I've just been doing a lot of research on that exact topic, and, and I'm, I'm learning a lot. And What I'm learning is kind of scary. Uh, most people won't take the time to learn this, and even if you point it out to them, most of them will go, oh, no, that's not bothering me. I sleep just fine you might sleep long enough but you might be surprised about the quality of your sleep and how it's affecting your body and your mind and everything all right so let's go to iowa john welcome to the program
6: hi kevin how are you today
1: good what's on your mind
6: good. hey i got a question kind of to people about uh, what are the regulations for uh getting a glider done. I've heard some things about you need a donor title. And if I've got a chance to buy an old freightliner that's with that Detroit thirteen three seventy three and I could run it for a little bit, um, you know, are these gliders gonna end soon and what are the no. regulations?
1: No, there here's the thing. A lot of people have said, Oh, gliders they're just the government's gonna stop it. Well, they might. But we have to look at reality and not just speculate all the time. And and unfortunately, most people just engage in random acts of speculation without any fact behind it. So I'm going to get to a break. But when we come back, I'll talk about the facts about gliders. Stick around, Kevin Roth. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. We're down to the final segment, so I'm going to get right back to the phone calls before the break. I was talking with uh, John in Iowa. John, go ahead.
6: Uh, yeah, I was just wondering about that uh, glider thing. So, you know, Are they going to end or, or what?
1: Yeah, so here, here are the facts around gliders. Uh, in this, I'm going to make an analogy about the states with the standards. People keep saying, well, it's California today, but it's going to be everybody tomorrow. No, it's not. We have to look at reality. I've looked around. There aren't even any other states proposing the kind of stuff that California has proposed. Even when they propose it, it doesn't mean anything. They have to write a bill. It has to get voted on to become law. California took decades to put those laws into place. So this mentality of the sky is falling, everybody's going to be like California. It's just not true. The same thing with gliders. Uh, People running around, oh, the government's going to stop gliders. Well, they might, but I've looked. There's not a single piece of legislation, not one. Nobody's even proposing we get rid of gliders. So once they propose it, then it's got to become a bill, then we have to vote on it, then it has to get passed. And Nobody's even talking about proposing a bill like this. So I don't know why people get all crazy and speculate that it's going to happen. Now, if I take some cues from people in the industry it, it, and high up at the OEMs, like people high up at Freightliner, they are saying that, that gliders probably still have at least a seven year lifespan looking out forward. Um, Who knows what will happen after seven years? I don't try to predict too much out beyond that, but we've got And here's the other thing. Once you own one, nobody's going to legislate it out of existence. So (laughs) as long as you can still buy one, then buy one. And then if the laws change, so what? You've already got one. It's almost if you're worried that they're going to go away, you better go run and buy one. So they're not going anywhere. Now, as far as the donor truck, that is true. The law says we have to have a donor truck for every glider that gets built, meaning we have to have a title. We, we convert it from you know an original truck to a glider, but we use a donor truck to do it. Now, what you'll find is that shops that build a lot of gliders, they just handle the donor title themselves. Many of them run, will run salvage yards and they'll just take junk trucks and they'll use those titles as donor titles. So not everybody coming to them to buy a glider has to have a truck already or a donor title. They can provide that for you.
6: Oh, okay. That's what I was wondering. Like you said, you hear talk and I just wanted to get it from, you know, somebody that knows. I was down in Kansas City business chat yesterday. He's as advertised.
1: Oh, he is. Yeah, he is the real deal. He is as genuine as they come, and he is the real deal.
6: Yeah, he's worth every penny. So that's all I wanted today. Thank you, Kevin.
1: You're welcome. Thanks for the call. Yeah, most glider shops that build a lot of gliders would rather just handle the donor title issue themselves. It's easier. Uh, But you can come in with the truck that you currently own and you can use that as the donor title for the glider. Let's go to Nebraska. Chet, welcome to the program.
6: Yeah. Hi, Kevin. Thanks for taking my call. What's on your um, mind? Well, I just, I'm wondering how much more of a percentage it it costs above and beyond like this uh, to, to have an employee. Uh, so let's say you pay the employee 30% of the load. And then how much more
3: do I expect to pay to pay his part of the taxes, uh, work with the comp or anything else that would be above and beyond his wage? Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, it does. Okay. And and we could figure this out exactly, but I'm going to get you pretty close in the ballpark. So there are a couple things we have to worry about. There's state unemployment and federal unemployment. Now the good news about both of those is you only pay them on the First, so many dollars each employee earns. And then once they go past that number, you don't have to pay it anymore. It used oh. to be around seven or eight thousand. So it's not even a lot. So even though you might pay a driver sixty thousand a year, you only have to pay unemployment on the first seven or eight. I don't, I don't know what the exact number is today. I'd have to go look it up, but it's not much. Then it just stops. The reason that you should be aware of that is because it's one more reason you don't want to do a lot of hiring and firing. Because if I bring one driver in and he, he earns $10,000 and I paid you know unemployment on 8,000 of it, and then he leaves or I get rid of him and I hire somebody else, guess what? I got to do it again. But if okay. I keep one driver all year, I'm done. I only had to pay that one time. So it's not a huge amount of money, but it's something to keep in mind. Um, now, next come the big one. Um, Social Security and Medicare works out to one, no, 0.156%. So it's 15.6%. So take whatever you're going to pay somebody, multiply it by 0.156. That'll tell you how much you're going to end up paying in Social Security and Medicare on payroll. Um, Then workers comp, you've got to decide how you're going to handle it first. Um, and that depends on the state. There are some states, Florida, for example, if you have less than three employees, Florida does not require you to have workers comp, but they do hold you responsible if somebody gets hurt on the job. So you can either self-insure or you could go get like a work accident policy, um, which is much cheaper than workers comp. Some states, one employee, you have to have workers' comp. There's no way around it. And workers' comp for truck drivers can get darn expensive. I've seen rates in the 20% range on workers' comp for truck drivers. Um, So so the Social Security and Medicare is easy. We know the exact number. Um, Unemployment is no big deal. We just want to make sure we're not hiring and firing all the time where we're penalizing ourselves. Um, It's the worker's comp that you're going to have to go do a little homework on to figure out because it's very state uh, dependent.
0: Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it.
1: You're welcome. And then the other option you can always look at, if you look at a lot of these costs and, and you think they're too high or it's too much trouble, you can always look at driver leasing. And I did driver leasing for a while. Now, it is more expensive, but it takes a lot of the guesswork and the headaches out. and You can actually have drivers who have access to health insurance and retirement accounts and all kinds of things. So um, driver leasing is another possibility. Now, and the other thing to remember on driver leasing, you don't have to accept the drivers they have already. I used to use a driver leasing company, but I would still hire all of my own drivers. I would run the ads, I would do the interviews, I would choose who I wanted, then I would send them to the driver leasing company and they would hire them and they would be my uh, full-time employee. It's just they did all the work. Let's go to uh, Quebec. Jason, welcome to the program.
0: Hey, Kevin, how's it going? Good. What uh,
1: what can I help you with?
0: i got an oil sample I want you to take a look at. And
1: I. All right, let's see what we've got going on here. So we're looking at a C-15, what year? Oh six. 6 Okay, so we've got ACERT, but no DPF. You've got... And those, uh,
0: well, yeah, that's in kilometers, so it's
6: a million on the truck, a million on the engine, 487,000 on the oil. Got it.
1: Wow, 487 on the oil, huh?
6: And that's my question. I'm hearing guys like rebuilding their engines at 500, and I got 487 on the
1: engine on the oil, and it's nothing. Yeah, yeah. And this oil sample looks amazing. I mean, really, the only thing they flagged it for it should be a zero. It's a one because your iron is at 91, but 91 is really low for oil that's got 500,000 miles on it. And you've got eight on your lead. Big deal. That's like nothing. So you do have a little bit of buildup of wear metals, but way less than what I would expect. And everything else is almost perfect. I mean, fuel dilution is non-existent. Soot is at 0.3. Viscosity is good. Base is holding up great. No dirt. No traces of lint. And, And really very, very low wear metals. When you look at the cylinder kits, chromium nickel, aluminum, you're at one, zero, and two. Uh, you know zero tin I uh, this is just a great looking sample and obviously a, a really healthy engine.
0: So I should just keep on running it and don't change, anything, don't change anything
1: then. Don't change anything. What you're doing is perfect.
0: That's
6: all I need to know.
1: All right, great stuff. thanks for the call. and. That's going to wrap things up for the day. I am all out of time. I've got to get out of here. We will see you back next time. I want to encourage you. I don't need your money. I don't need you to pay anything yet. We might someday, but right now, all I need you to do is go listen. We get enough listens. I can attract some sponsors. We can cover the cost. Please go check out the shows and listen to them. If you like them, keep listening and share them with other people. It doesn't cost anything. You can find them all at Let'sTruck.com. Be safe, be profitable, do the hard work, and master the journey. Good night, everyone. Kevin Ruff.